Welcome everybody to the Mershon Center. Oh, no, here comes some more. You are, you see, you're on. You all are on Berkeley time. I want to welcome everybody to the Mershon Center. Uh, we're, um, uh, uh, my kind of program is called Citizenship, and it's been going on for some years now. And I think Jim will be the second geographer. Jim, Jim Scott from Yale came in a couple of years ago, and I can now tell you the next year Michael Watts from Berkeley uh, will be coming. Um, but uh, today's speaker is Jim Blackman from the University of British Columbia. I'll just say a few words about format because some of you look a little bit unfamiliar. Um, generally, we uh, go for about 45 minutes to an hour for the talk. Uh, we don't take a break. Uh, we go right to Q&A. And you're all welcome to stay um, afterwards for a little reception. Um, and without further ado, the developmental state is dead. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alan. And I'll, uh, I guess since I'm, I'm not going to be tied to the microphone, I think you can all hear me fine, right? And so I can wander a little bit while I speak. Uh, but I want to thank Alan and thank everybody at the Marishan who helped arrange this and also great thanks to Joel Wainwright for setting, helping set this up as well. And I should say, I, I didn't know your other array of geographical speakers. I'm deeply honored to be included between Jim Scott and, uh, and Michael Watts, uh, both of whom are influential in my domains of study. Uh, I also wanted to say, just as a sort of preliminary, and thanks to uh, Joel's uh, uh, lab here at uh, Ohio State University, which includes uh, some people here in the audience today, who actually gave me feedback on a version of this project. This is the, what I'll be presenting today is based in part on what's now become a quite longish paper uh, that I've been working on with a collaborator from Seoul National University called Young Jin Che. And uh, this project has gotten unruly enough that who knows, maybe one day it'll be a book. But for now, I'm trying to figure out how to uh, mangle it into smaller papers. Uh, but it will be pretty condensed and approachable today. I'd simply like to thank the people who already gave us feedback on earlier versions uh, for helping us with it. So provocative title, of course. Uh, what's the purpose of all this? Uh, I hope a lot of you are familiar with the general concept of the developmental state. Uh, I've been interested in this in a particular way, and let me tell you here that my background, even though I'm talking today primarily about South Korea, is actually in the study of Thailand. Now, I, I do political economy of development, what I tend to call today geopolitical economy of development, and I really try not to be too fixed on one specific location, but most of my research has been in Thailand over the last 16 years. And in some respects, the way this project started is with the fact that when I was doing research on the Thai state and trying to figure out how to think both about empirical material and how to theorize the role of the Thai state in development, uh, what I found was that there was a prevailing debate that tended to structure the way you think about uh, the development process in a place like East or Southeast Asia. 
and the prevailing debate was hemmed in by these two positions. On the one side, we had the neoliberals, uh, people famously represented by a lot of the trade economists like Jagdish Bhagwati and Ian Little and others who said, look, the reason there's been this tremendous East Asian economic dynamism is because these countries and their national governments did the right things in terms of policy. Specifically, they had minimal interventions in the market, let markets get the prices right, and therefore based especially on export-oriented growth, which was interpreted as the same thing as free market, free trade policies. They developed this tremendous economic dynamism, which in turn proved that older policies of things like import substitution launched by the Latin American states and, and extended over many decades were really the reason for their stagnation not things like global core periphery structures, uneven development, and the like. Well, in response to that particular position, which was also canonized in a modified form by the World Bank in what was called its East Asian Miracle Report of 1993, you had the response of a series of critical scholars who, by pretty much self-designation, came to be known as neo-Weberian scholars. These would include people like Alice Amsden and her famed work on South Korea, Robert Wade, who wrote about Taiwan and beyond, and quite a number of other scholars, including a large list of Korean political economists, Ha Jun Chong, Young En Woo, many others who made major contributions to this literature. And what they argued is that, well, the neoliberals have it wrong. They are right only in saying that these economies grew dynamically and that they did so in part on the basis of participation in the global economy, reaching out to the global economy through export-oriented industrialization. But what they're wrong about is in thinking that the reason that happened is simply because these states kind of backed off, became relatively non-interventionist, let the market do the work. And what they argued, quite persuasively in many cases, is that there was a lot of evidence for these states doing something quite different than what the neoliberal and international financial institutions like the World Bank and IMF were recommending. They did things like, for example, condition credit uh, for particular firms on those firms participating in the global export market, but then gave them credit at concessional rates. In fact, rates of interest that were so low that they were negative real interest rates over time. And this kind of disciplining of financial capital as one example, which I'll return to shortly, then was presented as an example of states intervening in very conscious and purposive ways to, as Amsden put it, get the prices wrong. And therefore, get the prices wrong became the kind of alternative formula to the neoliberal uh, formula of get the prices right if you wanted to launch a robust dynamic economic development process. Well, when I turned to examining Thailand in the 1990s, the, again, the debate was hemmed in by these two poles, and you were meant to sort of pick between what would account for success or failure of your particular case between those poles, and my contention pretty quickly became that neither of those uh, accounted adequately for what was going on in Thailand. Uh, specifically, on the one hand, Thailand had a very rapidly growing economy in the 1990s, in fact, probably the most rapidly growing national economy in the world for a period of about a decade. But it also had not had the same kinds of success as South Korea in industrializing in the same form. And it also clearly had, if you were willing to look open-mindedly at the role of the state, it did not have a state that had done the kinds of things that the South Korean state had done to discipline capital. So how was one to interpret this? Did it mean that the neoliberals had it right after all, at least in the case of Thailand? Well, the evidence is not strong for that, and the theoretical arguments are not compelling as far as I'm concerned. But the neo-Weberian developmental state model didn't appear to work very well either. So when I wrote about Thailand from the 1990s onward, including in a book that came out in 2004, 
one of the things I was devoting a lot of space to is saying, look, the Thai case suggests that we need to think about the role of the state in development outside of that framework of neoliberal versus neo-Weberian constructions. And my particular construction of the Thai case was not only a more Marxist-oriented theory of the state, but a theory of the state that focused on transnational dimensions of state formation, uh, the connections between different state bureaucracies, and so on. Well, to cut to the chase and get to our story for today, in a way what that did was put me in a position of saying, all right, I don't think the neo-Weberian account of developmental states in East Asia works well for Thailand. That left open the question of how well does it work for other cases? And we know for certain that South Korea has had a different kind of state than Thailand's. It's probably one of the premier cases of a state that really did accomplish in a fairly short period of time not only economic growth but a lot of industrial upgrading and transformation. And so it stands as a highly unique model of a country that we might have referred to as part of the Global South 40, 50 years ago, which surely is not part of the Global South today and which has undergone a very robust process, not just of economic growth, but industrial transformation. I'll give you some evidence of that toward the end of the talk. So what accounts for that? Does that mean that the neo-Weberian account works well for South Korea where it doesn't uh, for the case of Thailand? My contention, Young Jin Che's contention, is that no, the developmental state notion, the concept of the developmental state is helpful, but the neo-Weberian interpretation of where the developmental state came from, what it's about, how it functioned, and so forth, is still problematic. And so what we're doing, and what I'll go through in this presentation today, is to try to reconfigure thinking about the developmental state. This notion that the developmental state is dead, then, is meant to be a provocation. On the one hand, there's a lot of literature today that says whatever the developmental state was in the past, it no longer functions in the same way today. And we could go through that story if we were talking about, say, the last 10, 20 years. But I'm really going to focus on a period in the 1960s, which is, I think, a key period for the development of this South Korean developmental state. But I'm going to suggest that the neo-Weberian argument doesn't adequately account for the development of that developmental state or its industrial or economic dynamism, even in that period. And then I'll suggest some of the alternatives that people like Che and I think are uh, provide preferable accounts. Well, let me then give you a sort of brief definition, in a sense, of what I mean by developmental states. And I do this solely because there's a lot of literature on developmental states that I think plays very fast and loose with the concept. In the worst cases, any state that says it wants development and has some policy and encounters rapid growth is a developmental state. And that's what I call the honorific definition, which does no analytical work. So here's a particular definition. You can find a lot of elements of this in Amsden's works and, and other people's work, but I want to sort of fine tune it. Central, absolutely central in this notion, and it helps us differentiate, a, uh, by the way, a developmental state from a neoliberal state. Developmental states are states that discipline capital and especially financial capital. Now, what does that mean, disciplining capital? Well, I was just giving you an example with the mandating of low interest rate loans for particular industries provided they engaged in particular forms of production. That's disciplining capital insofar as it forced, for example, bankers to give over money to particular industries at less, at less than their preferred rates of interest. Now, why the focus on disciplining capitals as opposed to, say, disciplining labor? Well, quite simply, we're talking here about a capitalist state, one of the varieties of capitalism, and it's more or less taken for granted that all capitalist states discipline labor. That's de rigueur. It's part of virtually the definition of being a capitalist state. But not all kinds of capitalist states 
work equally to discipline capital. So if we find cases of a state, for example, that make bankers lend money at less than preferred interest rates, this stands as an example of disciplining capital. And one of the reasons this first part of the definition is central to the criterion that Che and I and others are using is because finance is so crucial to investment throughout the economy and development of the economy as a whole. So a very key indicator, I would say a necessary condition, not necessarily a sufficient condition for a developmental state, is that it exercises this kind of discipline over finance capital, forcing funds into selected industries uh, whose growth will hasten the process of industrial transformation. Now in the literature on developmental states by people like Amston, Wade, and others, uh, there are also other measures that are discussed as central to developmental state policy. And they include protection of particular industries. In this case, the idea is that import substitution, for example, might be something that a government does for a decade or so. Uh, it ceases to be developmental and becomes a kind of pork barrel system if the state maintains that protection for too long so that industries can shelter under it and not have to face global competition. But if it's used as a means for launching industries in the first place to give them a chance to get started, it's seen sometimes as an element of developmental state policy. Amsden places a great emphasis on subsidies to particular industries. I don't actually concur entirely with the idea that subsidies are by themselves developmental because they don't in fact involve any disciplining of capital, but what subsidies do in a particular context that Amsden emphasizes is they can be used to encourage people to produce in particular ways. And she calls the conditioning of subsidies on things like exporting part of your product uh, performance criteria. So a big shipbuilder like Hyundai, they get a subsidized loan from the Korean National Bank to begin engaging in shipbuilding, but the idea is they have to be able to compete on global markets, or Hyundai Automotive is going to get a subsidized loan. They get that only on condition that they export a particular percentage of what they produce. This is what she calls performance criteria. So these are I'd say at the core of any definition of a developmental state like that which uh, Che and I are using. Now, sort of uh, flashing ahead to something I'll suggest at the end of the talk, there's also something that we could take as a key indicator of, of successful performance by a developmental state. And by the way, I don't think the definition of developmental state should be honorific and that we should assume all developmental states are successful. We ought to allow that they can fail. So it's not an indicator of a developmental state per se to have rapid growth and it's not a sort of precondition of us defining one. But in the case of South Korea, which has been a successful developmental state using the disciplining of capital in this way, I think the key indicator that we want to look for is what some people in this development literature have called upgrading, technological upgrading, which is differentiated analytically from diversification, meaning simply starting to have new industries. The reason for that, as I'll make clear when I come to the end, is there are a lot of economies around the world that have begun to diversify the kinds of things they produce, become less dependent on agricultural production or raw materials, but there are very few, especially from the global south, that have succeeded not only in starting different kinds of industries, but becoming truly globally competitive in a range of lead industries, having clusters of industrial development that have strong forward and backward linkages and so on. So this notion of upgrading as the goal of a developmental state is something that's crucial. Now, in the Marxist literature on developmental states, which is where uh, my work is grounded and where Che and I are working, there have been a variety of approaches to uh, the developmental state. The neo-Weberian notion, just to clarify, has mainly emphasized that these 
goals of industrial upgrading and these particular policies of discipline and capital are something that can be undertaken by a state bureaucracy which has the right kind of approach to development, which is professionally trained and has a certain amount of autonomy from different kinds of forces that might torque it around to try to get it to perform uh, in ways that are favorable to specific industries. So this notion of a highly trained, professional, and relatively autonomous bureaucracy has been a key notion in the neo-Weberian accounts. Uh, most of us who are critiquing this from a broadly Marxist perspective are skeptical about even the possibility of having a kind of state bureaucracy that has the degree of autonomy suggested in the neo-Weberian literature. That's not because we think that states are just sort of complete manifestations of capital labor relations or something else, but rather because they're so deeply conditioned and intertwined in various ways with class structures and other <coughs> processes that the kind of autonomy that's suggested in these neo-Weberian notions uh, becomes a bit untenable. But within that broad sort of theoretical area of agreement, there have in fact been different kinds of Marxist approaches, and I'll just flag several of them here uh, to note where Che and I are placing our own critique. Uh, the first of these, which I could identify with Daeop Chong's book, Capitalist Development in Korea, is a, a broadly and fundamentally theoretical interpretation which simply says you, you can't have that kind of autonomy of a development bureaucracy and suggests reasons that are theoretical as well as a few empirical examples for, for why the South Korean state should not be considered to have that degree of autonomy. Uh, we have some sympathy with Chong's account, uh, but we think there's actually a point to paying attention to some of the details that have to do with varieties of capitalism and different ways that states uh, fail to be fully autonomous from capital but might undertake different kinds of actions. Uh, another kind of Marxist critique that is associated with a, a, a large array of theorists, but I'll cite here Martin Hart Landsberg, for example, emphasizes simply the idea that the neo-Weberian literature about developmental states has been too highly laudatory in the sense that it doesn't pay attention to things like repression of labor. And the successful performance of the South Korean developmental state, for example, whatever degree of autonomy we think it has or doesn't have, has certainly been conditioned strongly by things like having a very repressive regime toward labor and civil society over many decades. And in that sense, the critique says, irrespective of what neo-Weberians think is so great about this, we ought to be critical of it because of its performance in areas like labor rights, civil rights, and so on. Well, Che and I also have a, a lot of sympathy with this particular approach as well. But what we're most influenced by in this work is the third approach uh, that I've put on the bottom, which I call less of a dismissal of the notion of the developmental state or a lauding of the developmental state than a critique specifically of the neo-Weberian constructions of developmental state performance. And one person who I can cite here who's kind of a forerunner of this type of approach is Vivek Chibber, uh, who in a book called Locked in Place, among other places, did a fairly extensive comparison of the performance of the South Korean state and his main target of analysis, the Indian developmental state. And he contrasts the two to explain why the one was more successful than the other. In doing this, he's giving us an example of a sort of varieties of capitalism approach that suggests a way of interpreting the differences between the South Korean state and the Indian state, and not only its performance, but the structural and social reasons for it. And just to be very, to very briefly highlight what Chibber argues as it leads into our argument in this paper, Chibber suggests that the developmental state literature launched by neo-Weberians does in fact place too much emphasis on the idea of the autonomy of the state and it also suggests capital is a little bit too abjectly dependent upon what the state does. 
So what he argues in his comparative analysis of South Korea and India is that if people think the South Korean state came along and simply disciplined investors, told them you should invest in this, you'll only get credit if you do A, B, or C, that fails to recognize that at the end of the day, if these private sector investors don't decide on their own to plot money down in particular lines, that nothing happens economically. That is, they have a final point of decision whether to invest at all or not, as long as the state doesn't totally control private capital. And given that, Chibber is skeptical about the degree to which the South Korean state can be seen as really disciplining capital in the way that some of the neo-Weberian accounts suggest. And interestingly, he also highlights in this context some transnational connections which he thinks are actually crucial to the performance of the South Korean economy and that have been overlooked in the, the earlier neo-Weberian accounts. In particular, he notes that a lot of the Korean firms who became successful at export-oriented industrialization, certainly benefiting from the prodding of the Korean state, subsidized credit and so forth, were also firms that had formed tie-ups with Japanese trading companies and were guaranteed through those tie-ups that they would have marketing lines into the major market in the world that mattered for this kind of industrial upgrading, the United States, where they could immediately then anticipate success in exporting, which undercut their potential opposition to being forced to export. What Chibber emphasizes is that it's one thing for states to say, go ahead and export a lot of what you produce. It's also something else for companies to say, yeah, we want to export. But a big part of the challenge of exporting is not just producing a product cheaply, but getting it placed in a market, finding people who will buy it, and so on. So he thinks these tie-ups, specifically with Japanese companies, which were available in part because Japan was moving into other areas of economic activity, were crucial to the willingness of South Korean firms to be disciplined in the way that Amston and others have suggested, and suggest their own agency in going along with a developmental state project that pushed them to be globally competitive through export growth. Well, <clears throat> this is the kind of analysis that I'm picking up on, but what I want to do in the remainder of the talk then today is add a dimension to it. I'm going to suggest that this kind of general account that Chibber launches is very important and productive, but that it should be expanded in various ways especially to emphasize what I call the geopolitical economy of East and Southeast Asia. Geopolitical because my contention is that there's a deep interconnection between the geopolitics of events like first the Korean War and then the Vietnam War and the development of the regional political economy. They don't actually exist external to one another as two separate spheres of activity or analysis. They deeply interpenetrate one another. And I'll try to show you that in the case of Korea by focusing on what I'm calling here a medley of interconnected events that run from roughly the early 1960s toward the end of the decade. My contention is that these particular events are crucial for both the ramping up of the Korean developmental state and for the development of the capacity of a lot of the leading firms that the South Korean state is allegedly disciplining and driving into export-oriented production. Uh, but as I'll try to suggest, uh, what we can see if we look at some of these kinds of events is how a set of transnational connections that are both political and economic at the same time became the crucial enabling conditions, both for the South Korean developmental state in general and for the specific performance of some of its firms. So those events, which I'll go through uh, uh, more or less in order, but emphasizing some of the interconnections, are the Japan-Korea Normalization Treaty, signed in 1965, the reduction of the U.S. military presence in Korea as it began to devote more of its military resources to the Vietnam War, 
uh, what was called the U.S. Many Flags or More Flags program for Vietnam, through which the U.S. recruited various foreign troops to fight with it in Vietnam. A particular important moment, the Brown Memorandum in which the U.S. announced special provisions for getting uh, Korean firms offshore procurement opportunities, which I'll talk about in some detail. And then, really, what are the results of all of this? The development of things like the Korean Institute for Science and Technology as a sort of Cold War gift from the United States to Korea, and expanded opportunities for Korean participation in U.S. offshore procurement, or OSP. So, I'm going to do this via most of the, the rest of this talk via some images that I find very powerful and fetching, and some of them you'll see are from these particular sites, the blog, uh, popular Gust Blogspot is a great resource for historical uh, images of Korea and uh, documents, so I'll use a lot of their material. But let's go back to 1961, when in the title of one of those uh, blogs, a country boy named Park Chung-hee uh, launched a military coup and threw out uh, the short-lived Chong Myon government, which had briefly replaced uh, the uh, Syngman Rhee government for a year. That military government is the one that's typically associated most strongly with the development of the Korean developmental state, and for good reason. It was a strongly authoritarian government. The previous governments had been authoritarian as well, but it was one of the first governments that was willing to be in some respects authoritarian toward capital, and that was signified right after Park Chung-hee came to power by the fact that 13 leading businessmen, the richest businessmen in the country, were lined up and sort of publicly trolled out for abuse uh, under the charge that they were illicit accumulators of wealth who'd gotten sort of unjustified contracts and perks and so forth from the previous governments. And this is often kind of cited as symbolically significant in a lot of the literature that says, look at what kind of, what a different state this was. You know, what kind of state would normally take its business leaders out and sort of flog them rhetorically in public? Well, there's certainly something to that. But uh, at the same time, as Chibber and many others have noted, the flogging was more, in fact, symbolic than real, and mainly what Park achieved by this was to uh, extract promises from these business leaders that they would try to cooperate with the government in launching uh, new programs of development that would lead to more robust industrial growth, among other things. Now, uh, at, in the first instance, that did not involve necessarily exporting a lot. In fact, from 1961 through at least 1963, the emphasis of the Korean government remained on domestic protection, import substitution, industrialization, and so on. It changed for reasons uh, that I'll get to shortly. Uh, but the government was also very authoritarian toward other groups. Uh, this is a shot from Seoul National University where a, a bunch of unfortunate students were caught out uh, after the curfew that Park's government had put in place. He didn't like, uh, if, if he weren't Korean, I might say he was a bit Victorian, but he didn't like all the late night activities in Seoul. Uh, so the students were made to understand that if they were staying out late at night and partying or even going to restaurants, they would uh, be policed in this fashion, thrown into the auditorium and told to stay there until it was time to go home the next morning. Well, these, uh, these kinds of uh, policies didn't necessarily sit well with everybody in Washington, D.C. The U.S. had a historically very, very close relationship with the South Korean government for the obvious reasons. And they, in fact, remained in place. But there were people in Washington, D.C., under uh, the John F. Kennedy administration, for example, who were concerned, where are we going here? Sometimes Park even almost sounds like he's anti-capitalist, and he's certainly not any liberal. Well, there wasn't all that much love of liberalism for other people's governments in Washington, D.C. at that time, but nonetheless, it didn't sit well with everyone. 
Uh, but what was really the overriding concern that had already come to the fore at uh, the point of the JFK regime is that Korea had developed what people in Washington liked to, to call as a mendicant state, a state highly dependent upon US aid and dole. And that was acceptable to an extent while Korea was seen as the bastion of protection against the growth of communism in East Asia, North Korea, and China. And it was accepted as the price of doing business with an anti-communist regime. But by the early 1960s, when the Kennedy administration was ramping up its war effort in Vietnam, and the expenses of this vast military project were becoming apparent, it was simply economically imperative that the U.S. figure out ways to cut the aid bill to South Korea. And so there was a lot of discussion, starting under the Kennedy regime, on how we can reduce that bill. And one of the key elements of this came to be something that had already been on the agenda before but not pushed aggressively, which is how do we get South Korea to normalize relations with Japan? Those relations had been frozen, cut off since the end of the colonial period, since the, second, since the end of the Second World War, and there was quite understandably tremendous animosity in South Korea toward the prospects of doing any business in the short term with Japan, not only because of the fact that Japan had yet to pay any war reparations and had uh, injured Korea in many ways, uh, but because there was a real fear that were trade and investment opened up again, that the Korean market would then just be flooded with Japanese goods, Japanese money, and so forth, and it's any attempt at building much autonomy would be thwarted. So when JFK's people, for example, were pushing this with Park Chung-hee, uh, they began to get more aggressive about suggesting the need for normalization of, of trade with Japan, but they still had to back off some resistance in the early 1960s. Now the basic thinking here was that if Japan begins to trade with South Korea, we'll get a flow of Japanese investment into Korea. It will make up for the aid programs that we need to reduce. It will reduce our necessary military bill and so forth so we can begin devoting those monies elsewhere. So the imperative was very strong in the United States. And given this, it's quite interesting that once LBJ came to power, uh, this is an interesting uh, little note in some of the diplomatic records that I hadn't seen until a few months ago in the um, Lyndon B. Johnson Library, but the, Lyndon Johnson attended JFK's funeral on November 25, 1963. The only note that I found about his attendance at that funeral says that he met at the funeral Park Chung-hee of South Korea and that he emphasized to Park Chung-hee at the funeral that the U.S. was very interested in getting the South Korea-Japan Normalization Treaty signed as, as soon as possible. That shows the extent to which this was an agenda item at the State Department. It was right at the top of the list. And there was a lot of pressure applied, especially from 1963, early 1964 onward, because that's when the key decisions had been made about ramping up the project in Vietnam. And so the imperative was really coming home to roost. But what was happening in Seoul, in particular, created real problems here. Students were demonstrating against the possibility of a normalization treaty for various kinds of nationalist reasons. They were backed by groups, particularly like groups of uh, fishing people. I'll explain their opposition in just a minute. Uh, but they got large numbers of people out into the streets by uh, 1964, throughout the year. Uh, the fundamental argument here was nationalist. We don't want our economy to be dominated again by the Japanese, and besides, they haven't uh, agreed to uh, the kinds of reparations we would like. So there was a strong resistance. Now, the attitude in Washington, D.C. toward this, and I'll use Robert Comer as an example, 
he's, he's one particular case, but he's not entirely unique. He's nonetheless a, a sort of interesting character. Uh, his nickname within the bureaucracy was Blowtorch, uh, Bob Blowtorch Comer, and it says something about the pithiness of his commentary on things. He was one of Johnson's key policy advisors. Later, although he'd hoped to be made a national security advisor, uh, was appointed to run the pacification campaign in Vietnam. Well, Comer, uh, commenting on the protests, put it this way. All in all, instead of urging Park and his Rasputin, Kim Jong-il, to be more democratic, maybe we ought to tolerate a little more dictatorship in this messy fief. Korea is still a mess, one of our great failures in spite of billions in pump priming, so I'd settle for a bit more stability, which would permit us to cut our bill some more. All right, so notwithstanding misgivings that various people in D.C. had about the authoritarian character of Park's government, at the end of the day, the important thing was to push various of these measures through and to prevent things like the student protests from derailing uh, the treaty. Now, the person that, uh, that Comer referred to, Kim Jong-il, will be familiar to many of you who are familiar with <coughs> Korean politics. One of the amazing long-term survivors of uh, Korean politics, originally coming to prominence as the head of the Korean CIA, and lasted on the scene long enough that he was still a major player in the formation of the Kim Dae-jung government, uh, the first uh, sort of left liberal uh, democratic government to come to power in the middle of the 1990s. So a very powerful and important player. Uh, and he was a lightning rod in the 1960s because it was felt by some of the activists opposing the normalization treaty that Kim supported it himself because of his own interests. He was going to get rake-offs from contracts that came in from Japan and so forth. And so he became uh, an important figure uh, of, uh, for the opposition. But in this general environment that I've described, Park ultimately decided to send out the troops. Uh, they came in, rounded up and arrested demonstrators, used tear gas against people and so on. Uh, rounded them up and detained them. Among the people who were detained, I don't know how many of you will recognize the face in the middle of this picture, uh, but this is the current Prime Minister of South Korea, uh, 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 sorry, Lee Myung-bak, who at that time was a student activist at Seoul National University and one of the nationalists out protesting uh, the treaties. He since sort of apologized in public for this, but uh, uh, that was the mood at the time. Now, one of the reasons that the fishing people were out and had a significant role in these protests is because one of the things that Syngman Rhee had done during his decade in power is used a particular uh, historical event to his advantage for the fishing industry. When the US occupation of Japan was in place in the 1940s and early 50s, General Douglas MacArthur drew a line, the line you see here, uh, to define the limits of the Japanese fishery. All right, Syngman Rhee said, all right, if that's the limit of the Japanese fishery, all these areas on this other side of it will be the Korean fishery. But that doesn't adhere to any normal sense of what the limits of a, of a uh, line are for uh, coastal resources. So especially in areas like this, uh, the Japanese were peeved that they were being excluded uh, just by fiat, by the, what Syngman Rhee called the peace line. And they were especially peeved by the fact that Japanese trawlers and so forth were being arrested and detained in the interest of trying to protect this uh, internationally non-recognized fishery for uh, Korean fishers. Now, notwithstanding the sort of irregularity of the line, there was a lot at stake for Korean fishing people because what they anticipated rightly was that with open competition in these waters, they would lose out to more heavily capitalized Japanese trawlers. So the economic consequences of this were going to be significant. And that meant that Park's government had to push this normalization treaty through, not only against 
nationalists in the generic sense, not only against students and so forth, but against a very interested economic group. And ultimately, they won the day in part, uh, not just because of their sheer power but because, and, and the general backing of the United States, but because of some specific interventions by the U.S. as well. The political opposition in the Korean parliament at the time, keep in mind that Park had been encouraged to operate a parliamentary system and even face elections to soothe the concerns in Washington, D.C. Uh, that it wasn't a very democratic regime. So you could still have the military intervening in different ways, but insofar as you could maintain a parliament, it was good. The political opposition was headed by this fellow, Yun Po Sun, uh, who championed the cause of these different groups opposing the, Jap uh, the Japan Normalization Treaty. And Yun was a, a significant figure until in early 1965, along came some of the U.S. Uh, uh, diplomatic heavyweights like Henry Cabot Lodge, at that time about to become ambassador to Vietnam, and criticized Yun very openly and publicly in the South Korean press because Yun had sent a, uh, a letter of, crit of criticism to the Johnson administration saying when, when Park sent the troops out, back in 1964, they were using tear gas provided for them by the United States. So they were basically violating Korean civil and human rights with your backing. Something should be done about that. Henry Cabot Lodge came along and said, Yun's anti-American. Now that might seem like a small thing, but in the Korean political system at that point in time, especially for someone trying to be a mainstream politician, this was kind of the kiss of death. It was saying that if you were to get into power, you would not be able to deliver the goods through a warm, affirmative relationship with the United States. So sh shortly after this, Yun sort of fell from power within the political opposition. The opposition fragmented. And then in a kind of astute move, uh, Park Chung-hee called for uh, a vote on the normalization treaty during the time when Seoul National University was not in session so that the students wouldn't be able to get together to protest. It was rushed through in the fall of 1965, and the treaty was signed. And this is regarded then in some of the literature you see here as the key moment in Korea's rags to riches story. Normalization, opening up, the possibility of more Japanese investment, and so on. Well, from this point in the story, uh, Che and I agree that Vivek Chibber is on to something very important about how the tie-ups with Japan then facilitated tremendous growth. But what we're emphasizing is that this geopolitical background to it, we don't want to assume that the treaty was absolutely inevitable or inevitable on a particular time frame. But because of the dynamic provided to the geopolitics by the Vietnam War and the U.S. interest in it, uh, that came into place in the uh, mid-1960s in a way that really facilitated later growth. One of the ways in which it facilitated a later growth was that as soon as the treaty was signed, the Johnson administration decided to reward the Park regime for its signature uh, on the treaty with Japan by sending its science and technology advisor, Donald Hornig, over to Seoul to reconnoiter with various Korean leaders, including this fellow, Lee Pyeongchul, who also will be known to you better uh, by the name of Samsung, the corporation that he founded, known its, its main uh, textile branch at that time, known as Chiel. Uh, Lee was one of the people who met with Donald Hornig and others. And through a series of negotiations and plans, they came up with the money for the Korean Institute of Science and Technology. Uh, a big research complex designed to help. The, the crucial thing was not just the development of technologies, which mattered, but also to have the ability to retain engineering talent within South Korea. There was a concern that all these people are going overseas to the United States to get training. We ultimately lose them. So developing a powerful research complex, which could help spin off products for the uh, private sector, as well as to begin training engineers, 
was crucial, and KIST became the sort of leading edge of that, though it was eventually supplanted by a variety of different kinds of uh, research projects and institutes. Now, as all of this was coming into place, another element of the geopolitics of the Vietnam War era became crucial. Again, remember the U.S. was very interested by this time in cutting its military budget to South Korea. It's also interested in removing some units from South Korea. And at the insistence of the uh, head of the U.S. military command, General Howes, a national security action memorandum was signed by Lyndon Johnson, which mandated the study of possible redeployment of uh, U.S. division now stationed in Korea. And it's notable what Johnson calls for in this study. He says the study should offer both a bare-bones minimum program and a more generous variant, which would fully compensate the Korean government for the loss of a U.S. division. And it's this emphasis on what the U.S. might be able to offer in compensation that becomes crucial because my argument is that Park's regime actually ends up negotiating fairly successfully using the space available to it to try to extract the most it can out of that space. Well, I'll explain this story in connection with uh, uh, another part of this story. The Many Flags program, which I talked about, was a program in which the U.S. wanted to try to get support from especially Asian allies so that the Vietnam War would not appear as a sort of U.S.-North American imperial intervention in Vietnam. It was a matter of our regional allies all sharing our concerns about the growth of communism. And I think the, uh, the racialized sensibility that went into it was expressed especially by McGeorge Bundy, Johnson's national security advisor in this memo when he says Australians, Filipinos, Thais, and Koreans would give real international color to the defense of South Vietnam and would also have a substantial breaking effect on any possible communist escalation. Well, as it turns out, the Korean government in particular was the most willing and in fact the most aggressive about committing troops to the U.S. Vietnam War effort. <clears throat> as you'll see here from this uh, caption on a Korea Times article, uh, Korea eventually sent as many as 300,000 troops to fight in Vietnam, 50,000 fighting at any one time. A very large contingent, and one well known, by the way, within Vietnam for being uh, serious fighters. Vietnamese forces were encouraged to not engage in combat with Korean units if they found them. Uh, so they made a significant uh, contribution to the U.S. war effort in Vietnam. Uh, and the negotiation about their participation became very crucial to the way some elements of the whole developmental state project fell into place. Back in the 1950s when Syngman Rhee was still head of state in Korea, one of his main allies was the head of the U.S. Military Command, General James Van Fleet. And in 1962, Van Fleet, who is very much still on the scene and also seen, by the way, in Washington as causing lots of problems by always weighing in on behalf of Korean projects in ways that uh, later administrations didn't want to deal with, Van Fleet came along and he said, look, the Koreans could benefit from being able to provide a lot of the military required equipment that we need for the war effort. Right now we produce a lot of pickup trucks in Japan. We could produce them in stripped down version and send them to Korea and have the Koreans fill in the rest of the components and get them started on certain industries. And because Van Fleet quite liked Park Chung-hee, even liked his authoritarianism and so forth, he suggested this would be a good way to get them on side as well as help uh, the Korean economy to grow. Now this was a popular position in South Korea because as the South Korean leadership understood, the Japanese economy had really begun to boom in the 1950s in no small part because it received a huge number of offshore procurement contracts from the United States military in the context of the Korean War. 
And this was a, an especially bitter realization for many Koreans because not only had Japan colonially dominated Korea, but then as soon as it got out, it raked up a tremendous amount of money and restarted its industrial economy on the back of the destruction of Korea during the Korean War. So Koreans were anxious to rectify that. They saw the necessity of trying to sort of yank some of those offshore procurement contracts away from Japanese firms. They thought it was kind of socially just in a historical sense. But it was difficult to know how to do it because there were no Korean firms that were going to be able to uh, compete really successfully with advanced Japanese firms. So even if you went in to bid on a contract with the U.S. military, if you could get access to it, would you be able to make a convincing bid and suggest that you could complete this uh, contract well? So Van Fleet's suggestion was already saying, we can exercise some favoritism toward these firms because there are guys. He, he called Park Chung-hee and his gang good boys. We can help our good boys over here to uh, develop economically. And that, that kind of suggestion was bouncing around in the pipeline. But it remained there for several years until all of this interconnected medley of events started to sort of synergize. The demand for the normalization treaty, the request for troops, and so on. And the gestation of the offshore procurement program was really pushed especially aggressively uh, in the final stages by this fellow, Winthrop Brown, who was appointed ambassador to Seoul from the United States in 1965 having started out uh, in uh, Laos in, in a key period in the development of the U.S. policies in Southeast Asia. And Brown had originally had some reticence about uh, special deals for South Korea and procurement because they didn't fit the official kind of liberal image of you know, arm's length market relations and competitive bidding and so forth. But by the end of 1965, as the U.S. was asking Korea more ardently for more troops for the Many Flags program and so forth, he really began to weigh in heavily on behalf of Park Chung-hee. He said in this telegram to the State Department, if the Koreans make this further troop contribution, it will be utterly impossible for them to understand why there can be no preferred treatment for them in matters economic, especially as they relate to South Vietnam. It seems to me that we are being faced with a political and human problem directly related to a bloody war in which we are deeply committed to the solution of which our normal commercial policy and peacetime procurement must also make their contribution. Actually, he wasn't talking about normal procurement practices. He was talking about abnormal procurement practices. And they were, in fact, uh, pushed forward. One further telegram just a little bit later, Brown said, preferred treatment for Korea under offshore procurement is becoming one of the most important issues in negotiations with the uh, Republic of Korea government to obtain a decision to dispatch the troops. Well, finally, by late January, USAID had considered this request and weighed in and said, yeah, we can do it. Here's what we'll offer. We'll offer Korean firms this opportunity. We'll exclude all suppliers except U.S. suppliers. And by the way, if you know something about the way the contracting system works, that also means that the U.S. military can exercise some leverage on those U.S. suppliers to say, back off a little. Get these, let these guys have the grant. And, uh, and Korean, uh, from bidding on certain items which AID is buying for its project operations in Vietnam. This restricted procurement list will be composed of commodities which we have found to be within Korea's capacity to produce satisfactorily and in exportable quantities. And what this finally leads to is what comes to be known as the Brown Memorandum, which is actually a letter from Winthrop Brown to the Korean foreign minister. And interestingly, the details of this memorandum were not released to the U.S. Congress until 1970, six year, or four years later, uh, when they actually became a matter of a little bit of contention. But it was kind of widely understood in the circuits that something had gone on. Korea had been offered these terms, but it wasn't known what the terms were. 
this was discovered in 1970, they included that Korea would be, that the U.S. would uh, procure in Korea insofar as practicable requirements for supplies, services, and equipment for the Republic of Korea forces in Vietnam, and to redirect to Korea selected types of procurement for United States and Republic of Vietnam forces and the Republic of Vietnam. And without going through some of the details of each of these, you'll see they cover similar areas, a whole series of specific agreements to say Korean firms are going to get an opportunity to go to the table and bid under prefer preferred conditions and thus get in on the Vietnam War boom. Now, what this resulted in ultimately is lots of things. If you go through lists, as I have, that uh, the uh, US National Archives have of offshore procurement contracting, and find the Korean firms huge numbers that got in on Vietnam contracting. Some of the biggest were firms like Hanjin and famously Hyundai, uh, whose founder Chung Ju Yong here is pictured in Vietnam. Hyundai went to Vietnam. We've actually talked to an engineer who worked there, and they made profit hand over fist. They uh, were able, as this engineer told us, to use materials supplied to them by the US military. They had so much material supplied that they could actually ship some of it back to South Korea when they were done because there was surplus. They were provided all the construction equipment. And not only that, for all the talk about a disciplinary process, they were actually sat down with US Army engineers and told, do it just this way, do it just this way. There was no issue of the product being rejected at the end by the market. All right? And this was a tremendous process of technological upgrading, capacity building, as well as profit. They generated tremendous profits off these efforts, including, by the way, through quite famously doing a lot of the dredging of Kamran Bay, where the uh, naval base was established by the US and Vietnam. Well, to give you a sense, and it wasn't just Hyundai, but to give you a sense of the uh, importance of this, not just to technological upgrading, but the accumulation of capital, Alice Amsden herself has estimated that Hyundai got 26% of its construction revenues during the mid-1960s from Vietnam War contracts and 77% of its total profits. More generally, if you look at some of the figures on the bottom assembled by Young and Wu, total assistance from US military economic aid uh, and so on, uh, Japanese economic aid, international financial assistance and so forth to Korea from 1946 to 1976 comes to a per capita average of 600 US dollars per Korean citizen. This is a tremendous financial subsidy to the Korean economy and some of it going directly into the coffers of these firms who can then use it for technological upgrading and to try to become more competitive in the global economy. Well, let me wind toward a conclusion here a bit quickly by suggesting what difference that makes, not just for South Korea, but for the structuring of the regional economy. A lot of times this is discussed as if what we should do is say, how did the whole regional economy develop in the, in the same framework, whether it's a series of de developmental states or Cold War states or whatnot. My contention is that actually what this kind of story helps us to understand is the differential position of a lot of the states who are part of the regional alliance. Here are the regional allies, the people who came together under the Many Flags program. In the center is Ferdinand Marcos of the Philippines, who is one of the key US allies in the region. He's been uh, anointed, in a sense, to be the host of a big conference in Honolulu, in, or rather in Manila in 1966. Just to his left is Park Chung-hee, uh, the representatives of Australia and New Zealand are there as well. Uh, these two fellows are the two competing Vietnamese leaders, Ki and Thieu, who haven't sorted out yet who's really going to be in charge. And off to the side is Tanom Kitakachon, the Thai leader, with LBJ sort of presiding over the whole line at the end. 
And at this conference to discuss the Many Flags program and regional cooperation, it was meant to present a sort of this Asian face, to say these are our regional allies all getting together to uh, promote the good cause of anti-communism. But the remarkable White House photographer, Okamoto, who took shots of all these things, manages to get a whole slew of images that give you a sense of what's really going on with LBJ sort of leaning over to whisper in Marco's ear to make sure he's saying the right things. And most especially, early in the conference, this particular meeting in LBJ's hotel room with the assembled dignitaries of the US national security state ringed around the outside. Uh, uh, this is um, McGeorge B Bundy, Clark Clifford, uh, no, sorry, uh, Clark Clifford, Henry Cabot Lodge, there's Blowtorch Comer, General William Westmoreland, our favorite development theorist, Walt Rostow, back in the corner, and the Asian leaders who really matter for purposes of this conference. Park, who's going to supply most of the foreign troops, and the two sparring Vietnamese leaders, uh, Key and Tu. Now, uh, if you go to the, uh, read a little bit about LBJ, you'll find that he's famous for something that was known as the Johnson treatment. Johnson was six feet six inches tall, and he was famous for coming up to people and bending over and looking down at them and making sure they kind of knew what kind of power and authority he had. Uh, here he was delivering the Johnson treatment to his friend, the Justice Abe Fortas, and I've kind of imagined that you could see the same kind of presence at work when he's sitting in his hotel suite, leaning over and lecturing Park, Tiu, and Key about what the U.S. wants in the way of military performance in Vietnam and uh, the alliance structure and so forth. Again, with that sort of set of dignitaries all surrounding these Asian leaders. Well, that's not to say that the South Koreans were just bullied into playing this role. Park very much appreciated being able to play it, and he in fact showed it by inviting LBJ to go back through Seoul on the way back from the uh, conference in Manila. In fact, he'd been a little miffed that the conference hadn't been held in Seoul in the first place since he considered South Korea the real uh, stalwarts in the alliance. So there were big parades on the street uh, to welcome Johnson, reviews of troops and uh, placards to show the, uh, the military strength of the Korean army. Johnson got to see the sure signs of modernization at work in South Korea as the economy was taking off. And he even got treated to uh, his own, to Walt Rostow's terminology channeled back to him by Korean boys who'd been given signs uh, that said, come to see our economic takeoff. So South Korea was very much a willing participant in this, at least Park's regime, but they'd negotiated themselves into a very favorable position. And some of the other countries in that alliance didn't, in fact, succeed in negotiating themselves into quite that kind of position. And you'll get a sense of this, I hope, from some of the data that I'll produce here quickly as I run toward a conclusion. Here's a comparison between South Korea, Thailand, and the Philippines. The total value of both military offshore procurement contracts and military assistance program funding. And you'll see uh, Korea in the lead here. And note, quite important, because of the technological capacity that's developed, Korea's uh, especially offshore procurement contracting takes off again in the 1980s, whereas for these other countries, that aid package is reduced to about zero. Note that the Philippines, the US former colony, gets virtually nothing out of this. In fact, the Philippines did not get any offshore procurement contracts at all. And that's in spite of Marcos explicitly asking the U.S. for opportunities to, to get the kind of special procurement that he suspected uh, South Korea gotten. And the U.S., in the manner of kind of, you know, dealing with your former colony, says, eh, we really can't do much for you. Uh, 
you know, we'll set up a little office for you in Manila so you'll be aware of what your firms can bid on, but no special opportunity. Uh, I'll show you in a minute why that matters. If you look at offshore procurement and MAP as a share of gross domestic product, you can get a sense of the importance of this to the Korean economy. In the key years of the 1960s, as the Korean industrialization campaign is taking off, it starts to reach over 10% of GDP, and it actually starts to reach over 50% of total uh, gross fixed capital formation. So it's absolutely crucial to the industrial ramping up of the Korean economy in this period. Now, note the difference between South Korea and the, these two other allies. Thailand didn't get in on the offshore procurement boom to the same extent as South Korea, and especially not for industry, but South Korea's economy was already very agriculturally geared. And when it did get opportunities to send goods for the war effort, a lot of it was rice, which remained a mainstay of the export-oriented economy for some time. South Korea, on the other hand, having already begun to try to promote through the developmental state these industries, benefited tremendously from the war contracting opportunities. And you see that in the 1960s, most of the value from uh, manufactured goods coming out of Korea was for new industrial products, part of that process of upgrading. Note that the Philippines also had a, a well-developed manufacturing economy at that point in time. In fact, as of the early 1960s, uh, the Philippines had more manufacturing output than did either South Korea or Thailand. This is the Philippines at the top. When the United States decided to favor South Korea with military offshore procurement contracts and not favor the Philippines, it wasn't because the Philippines didn't have firms with the capacity to fill some of those contracts. But decisions were made on other bases, including the uh, commitment to prov providing troops in large numbers and so on. And look at what happens. Here's the point where South Korea's economy begins to take off, surpassing the Philippine economy and manufacturing value added uh, by the early 1970s. And if we put it in the longer term, look at the tremendous difference in the trajectory between uh, the Philippines on the bottom here and South Korea as this project unfolds. Note, too, that it's clear that the Vietnam War was a crucial turning point. Here's where the manufacturer, the share of manufacturers and exports starts to boom in South Korea, where it really becomes fundamentally a manufacturing and industrial economy in the late 1960s, while both Thailand and the Philippines remain much more agriculturally-based economies, resource-based economies, and so forth. So the upshot of this is that Che and I feel that this geopolitical moment which brought South Korea into the contracting system in a particular way is actually a crucial part of the story, not only of the development of the South Korean state's capacity, but directly the development of the capacity of many of these Korean industrial firms. It contributes overall to things like the tremendous explosion of GDP growth in South Korea, which I think differentiates it from some of the other uh, East Asian miracle countries, so-called, that we're considering here. And it also has this kind of consequence. Because South Korea developed such a robust industrial economy with lots of manufacturing jobs, when we look at things like income distribution today and contrast the Philippines with uh, South Korea and Thailand, South Korea's income disparity is significant, but much less uh, so than uh, the Philippines or Thailand, where the fundamental issues have been that the manufacturing sector, which provides jobs at relatively high wages, is comparatively small, a large proportion of the population remains locked in relatively less remunerative operations, a lot of them connected to agriculture and so on. So this was a process of upgrading in South Korea that had manifold consequences, not just economic growth, 
but industrial opportunity, distribution of income, and so on. Uh, so to summarize, and I'm really going to go through these last uh, slides quickly and get to a conclusion so we can talk. Uh, our contention is that if you want to understand something like the dynamism of the South Korean developmental state, we think that the concept of developmental state is important and useful, but that the neo-variant account has misspecified how the developmental state in South Korea succeeded. And it's misspecified it in various ways that are theoretically significant, but in part because of the theoretical orientation of the neo-Weberian framework, it also misses important parts of this geopolitical economic story, how things like the Vietnam War uh, contributed tremendously to South Korea's boom. And we have to say that one of the reasons, perhaps, why that's not an especially popular part of the story to tell is that if we called the East Asian miracle the flip side of the East Asian massacre, if we said that, in fact, the tremendous boom in South Korea was the flip side of three to five million people losing their lives in Vietnam, then we might not uh, want to necessarily ask solely the question, how can other people develop developmental states? We might want to ask if there are other ways to proceed uh, to try to develop. So I'll end there. be able to answer your question better in four years because the next round of my project on which I have a Taiwanese assistant working right now uh, will help me to see it better. My, uh, my starting take on this is that uh, Taiwan is a different case from South Korea and in part that's reflected in things that, um, that are much noted in the literature like the different kind of firm structure, different kind of economic structure. Theoretically at least Taiwan's growth being based to a much greater extent on things like small firms and clusters of such firms rather than these giant industrial conglomerates that came to dominate South Korea. And I think that's in part because uh, Taiwan did not get in on things like that offshore procurement boom to the same extent. It's also because in, in Taiwan, there was a much more extensive land reform that made small-scale ag agriculture more robust and spun out of that lots of different industries. My contention would be that if you wanted to take this geopolitical economic approach to that, the starting point for dealing with Taiwan would be to say things like the really extensive land reform also had a lot to do with the Cold War geopolitics of the region because when the Kuomintang got to Taiwan, they were not only much chastened by their loss of the mainland, but now they were being prodded even more aggressively by U.S. advisors, especially the more liberal among them, to pursue an aggressive land reform and their relocation to Taiwan in part enabled that. So there are numerous dimensions of this that one would have to explain that come out differently than the South Korean uh, case. I should note too that the US really wanted to use more Taiwanese troops as well as to subsidize their industries, but they were very concerned about the reaction from China, so it tried to keep this more on the QT. They weren't as concerned about the North Korean response to South Korean troops, but they uh, wanted to lay low with Taiwan. A lot of the Taiwanese leaders would have been happy to participate at the same level as the South Korean uh, operators, were, but weren't given the chance to do so. That's where I'd start. I don't know where I'd end. <laughs> I have a question and nobody else does. So um, can we go back to the starting point? Mm -hmm. I, I don't do this work at all. Um, so 
So I'm not quite sure why anybody would think that there is a theory that tells you how states develop or developmental states develop. So you gave us three to begin from, the neoliberal, the neo-Liberian, and then you talked about Marxist critiques. I assume there's a Marxist story. But why would you be particular and say develop these states all develop differently for different reasons, some of them sorts that you just talked about, and it's really a mishmash. Well, honestly, as a geographer who's conditioned to say, okay, the specific location, the particularity of the case matters a lot, there's a part of me that wants to go that direction. As someone very indebted to Marxist theory, I also say there is some point in thinking about whether states in which capitalist economic processes are the dominant driving processes have certain capacities or certain limits on what they can do so that we can think systematically certainly about the range of different kinds of capitalism and kind of capitalist state behavior. That's the notion of varieties of capitalism and Mike Force's more empirically, empirically grounded assessment of this case, that case, and so on. But also to fit that within a broader theoretical frame that says, as with Chibber's account, you can't expect any capitalist state, if it's really within a capitalist economic context, to discipline capital in the sense of just coming along and telling the whole business leadership what to do. It's not possible because the control of private investment capital on which the whole economy and to a great extent the state depends can be demobilized by, private, by the private sector if the state doesn't do things to appease that class. So the point is to have a broad framework of general theoretical points that prevent you from sort of overstating what you think states can do or uh, some other such thing. So I, I would, I would I would argue for a kind of combination of what you're talking about, seeing some of the variety in the mismatch, but still trying to pre present it within a general framework of theoretical arguments that are persuasive. Uh, yeah. That's a that's a fair question. So it just looks like a one-off military industrial complex kind of argument that actually has almost nothing to do with the economy. In terms of what's behind us, where I'm thinking Marx is some kind of important portion of either capital accumulation or necessary large banks to keep fiduciary things, or funding development is based on development or uh, fair enough. It's only at most lightly sketched here, but I think I can fill in for you a little bit. Uh, first of all, it's meant to be a Marxist account because a lot of the groundings are, at, are in an analysis of the class structure. So things like the importance of particular Korean chaebol, their relationship to labor, their relation to sectors like the small fishing industry, which was sacrificed essentially to a certain extent by the Normalization Treaty, which a lot of the big Korean industrialists favored. That's part of the class story and seeing how the U.S. weighs in on behalf of one class uh, alliance uh, at the expense of another is part of the story. It's also part of the story because I don't think you can actually analyze entirely the U.S. military industrial complex or the U.S. foreign policies in Vietnam or elsewhere in Asia without seeing it as what Bob Jessup would call class relevant. It isn't just about class in the sense of how does capital control labor or accumulate more surplus. It's how do we create the stable conditions for the growth of that kind of economic system. 
and the U.S. entry into Asia from uh, the end of the Second World War onward, as I see it, was conditioned very deeply by a strong awareness that the U.S. own economic system depended on there being a globalized economy in which the U.S. Had, could invest, with which it could trade, a series of outposts and allies, and Asia became a, a flashpoint for that concern because of the way anti-colonial movements were fusing with communist party leadership that threatened, as many of, in the U.S. leadership saw it, the openness of that economy to capitalist development in general. And so, I, in fact, if I were to fill out the account of the U.S. military-industrial complex and foreign policy in Asia, I would do it through that kind of broadly Marxist geopolitical economic lens. Yeah, that's a good point, in, in part because, in fact, a key moment in the sort of ascendance to really <coughs> successful industrial growth comes after the story I told. Hyundai gets into shipbuilding and things like that in the 1970s. Our argument, though, and I did No, no, I was just, I was using that as a, a no. They, they did dredging of Kamran Bay, but they mainly did construction projects within, uh, but the one key here, by the way, is Hyundai Construction is the mother company for every one of Hyundai's other industries, all right? So all the, and all their engineers trained on projects in the Vietnam era developed a lot of their capacity, their familiarity with how to operate in transnational context, and so on through that. But a lot of the full-fledged industrial upgrading began in the 70s. It still happened in the context of this general Vietnam War contracting economy, but what I think is that to a great extent, by the time these firms are up and running, they have transnational business interests, they have investments, they're, they're competing already in global markets. At that point, a lot of the dynamism that Marx and others identify with a capitalist economy is routinely functioning. You can't be Hyundai, have investments not just in Southeast Asia, but by that point in the Middle East and elsewhere, and then just sort of go to sleep and say, well, we'll coast on our laurels now. There's an inbuilt drive to continually expand to ensure profitability. I think there are many forces at work, but those forces that, that Marx identifies with the dynamism of capitalist processes in general are, I think, an important force driving these Korean firms forward from the 70s onward. And in fact, to such an extent that by the 1980s, they've shown signs of outgrowing the developmental state, at least in the sense that they no longer want the state disciplining.
Uh, you're too you're too modest. It's not that simple a question, but thank you for it anyway. Uh, actually, um, I think that things have changed a bit, and I don't think uh, you you could mark some of the change in this way. After the Asian economic crisis, well, let's go back to before the Asian economic crisis in the early 1990s. There's a lot of evidence that the policies coming out of not only the international financial institutions like the IMF and World Bank but also out of Washington, D.C. itself, were becoming increasingly unfavorable to some of South Korea's developmental state strategies. There was an open invocation of allow financial capital to flow more freely through your markets. Liberalize your rice market. We want you know, Arkansas-based producers to be able to uh, start selling more effectively in South Korea. There was a lot of demand for market liberalization, and this was already augmenting what the Chaebol were doing themselves to force the Korean state to back out of certain kinds of developmental state activities. And so from that point, if you want to see it this way, I don't think the emphasis in the US was on encouraging Korean firms to be competitive in the regional or global economy. It was more on encouraging the Korean economy to open up further so that US firms would get opportunities to come in and be more successful in the Korean market. And the sort of climax of that uh, change in policy was reached after 1997 when the economic crisis in Korea sent the government going to the IMF. The IMF said, sure, you'll get this bailout loan, but only on condition that you open up certain sectors in various ways. And that was a point at which, for example, Goldman Sachs, well connected as we know through people like Robert Rubin, came in and really began buying up lots of Korean properties at fire sale prices, much to the chagrin of a lot of Korean nationals, by the way. Uh, led to these famous placards that you could see, like the, the placards that said, I am fired for IMF and so on. So I think the, the policy has changed. But to, in saying that, I would not want to say that the US has sort of adopted a policy, we don't want Korean firms to be successful anymore. It's rather that this Cold War moment, which extends at least into the 1980s, suggests we're willing to tolerate a certain amount of national economic policy that protects certain Korean firms and encourages them to go abroad to pursue their own interests as long as it's part of the formation of a regional economy that we want to see develop and as long as it maintains an alliance with the United States which is important geopolitically. After that I think what changes is the US is saying we don't mind if Korean firms are successful but let them be successful in a more transnationalized, liberalized economy. And we're not going to shelter them anymore with different kinds of Cold War era protections. In fact, we're going to demand that those be broken, uh, broken apart.
All very good questions. <laughs> I could spend an hour answering them. Uh, but uh, you, yeah, you're absolutely right that in the paper there's a little more emphasis on the specific role of the firms. And so to start with your last question, uh, certainly both Youngjin and I think that the Chaebol are actors. They aren't just passive in this. So the, the Korean Federation of Industries, I didn't get to talk about this in the talk today, but they play a major role in encouraging the Park Chun-hee government to move in the direction of not just export-oriented growth, but Chibber argues export-led growth. Get, you know, give us subsidies, help us lead the economy into greater dynamism. And, and, and that's not just Samsung or Chio and, uh, and uh, Yipyong-chul, but is a whole series of textile manufacturers and so on. And certainly, uh, Hyundai is a very active player. When they go overseas, Hyundai's management has said in their sort of corporate history, well, we decided maybe it was a good time to start investing overseas because we weren't entirely confident that Park was reliable. Maybe we needed to diversify our investments and find new environments. I mean, any crazed guy who would line up 13 business people and call them illicit accumulators. Actually, Chung Juyong doesn't stay, say it that way, but there's a sense you get that they were concerned that maybe they should diversify to make sure they aren't too susceptible to the discipline of the Korean state. So they were active, they, and, and certainly very powerful ones. There were a wide array of firms who participated in this. If you wanted to get a sense of it, you could go through, uh, I've got them on my computer and they probably contribute to much of the bog that slows everything down. Long, long lists of the Korean firms that got offshore procurement contracts, most of them who I don't even know who they are. But we know, for example, just with offshore procurement, that for example, Hyundai wasn't the biggest uh, of these contractors. I only highlighted them because they're so crucial to the overall Korean economy. Hanjin, the big shipping company, container company, actually did even better on offshore procurement contracting. And according to Young and Wu, had an even more aggressive approach to it. All right. There were also smaller companies uh, like De Lim, which is a construction company, never extended a lot outside of Korea itself, but still got in on that contract. So there's actually a wide array of companies. The, 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 only, the main reason we focused on some of these big ones is not just for want of time and whatnot, but because, as is often argued too, the Korean economy was to a unique extent dominated by a small number of large chaebol, among whom uh, you know, Hyundai and Samsung are about one-third of, of the ones that largely, if we listed LG and Daewoo and a few others, we'd have, most, we'd have about 50% of the Korean economy at a given point in time. So these aren't incidental players. They're actually crucial to the entire economic structure. But to be sure, lots of others involved. Not all of them were successful. And as we know, one of the things the Korean developmental state did is to say to some of them, you can't be successful. Forced Daewoo and LG to drop some of their business lines so that they get merged. and. Uh, you get more efficient and less competitive production and so on. So I think that's a, an important matter and I haven't gone into it in detail, but maybe that'll give you a sense of what we're arguing. Jim, thanks for a great talk. I want to go back to Professor Herman's uh, provocation about the Marxist character of your talk. Could you go back to that slide where you defined developmental state for one second? Yep. And I want to talk to you about that last point and something that I've often been struck by Right, you correctly indicate that, that one of her defining measures for calibrating the developmental character of the state or not is the degree to which it's supposed to be upgraded. And if we really look at what they mean in the literature when they talk about this, it's usually called moving up the value chain, yeah. higher end products. But if you look at what they mean by that, it's basically you know, more expensive products like industrial goods. It seems to me like that's one of those points where a Marxist critique comes in and says, actually, that's where value theory comes in. Yeah. We have to ask questions about the class character of 
in the economy how it changes. So this part here is the softball for you to talk about how this is where Marx's theory really kind of helps us out. Because it seems to me that one way of telling the story is to say that it's through the decisive interdigitation of South Korea's economy with, frankly speaking, the U.S. imperial project in Asia in this period, that for interests that have nothing to do with the proletariat of South Korea, that are based in places like Washington, D.C., and Wall Street, we have the eventual reconstruction of class relations in South Korea that facilitate not, not just upgrade, but the change in exploitation of labor so that today we can say that, you know, relatively speaking, the exploitation of labor in South Korea is lesser than in places like the Philippines, and partly because there, there are value flows moving into South Korea that make consumption for the worker consumer class much higher. Yeah, I, I agree entirely, and I didn't use some of the terminology I might now that you've provoked me to do it, but one one uh, bit of Marxian terminology that I would use is that what South Korea was being encouraged to do and Park's regime encouraged the Chabel to do by the mid-1960s was to begin emphasizing relative surplus value rather than absolute surplus value to figure out how to get more more production out of workers during the same amount of labor time through and, that, and that's what gets hidden I think in talk about technological upgrading uh, I think you're right about that it's not just using new technologies it's figuring out how to use those technologies to make the same amount of labor time productive of more value. And actually in the short term, what that's meant to lead to is a higher rate of exploitation. Actually workers getting less relative to what they produce. And I think there's some evidence of that happening in Korea in the 60s and 70s. But then the other part of the story that I think you would have to tell as a properly Marxian dialectic, as Marx himself was aware, is that creates a different kind of labor force. A labor force that now has different skills, is accumulated in particular places in different ways, isn't just spread out in small-scale agriculture, and also, crucial to me, not just hunkered down in sweatshops forever, because part of the problem of the Thai industrial upgrading process has been that it's lingered for a much longer time in very low-wage, low-value-added production where workers can do very little except fight just to not get killed in the factory or something like that, whereas Korean workers, in part because of the tremendous success of this, absolute, of this relative surplus value strategy, by the 1980s, we're in a context where Korea had these very productive, more state-of-the-art factories, had globally competitive industries, and that by itself doesn't guarantee what happens later, but as we know, it's a contributing factor to the point that by the 1980s, you get in Korea a very robust, militant, and in most ways, very, we would say, very modern labor movement that says, okay, we've been producing all this wealth, we have to figure out now how to get hold of it, and that, that begins to also uh, come together with struggles over democratization, ending military dictatorships, and so forth, and really launches us by the end of the 1980s into this situation where Korean labor really does begin to reclaim more of the surplus value it produces. And I don't have figures here, but I could show you some showing that by the end of the 1980s, even though uh, wages are rise, start to rise dramatically in South Korea, but productivity shoots up along with it. Korean firms are productive enough, efficient enough at extracting uh, surplus value that they can counter the wage growth with productivity growth. And so what you get is a kind of Keynesian virtuous circle. Productivity grows up, drives consumption, more, uh, more production of factories and so forth until after in, in the context of the looming Asian economic crisis, the Korean state decides it's going to try to break that apart. Uh, that Keynesian moment doesn't last very long and today we have a regime that's really intent on uh, employing uh, temporary workers and people on irregular contracts so they can break apart the strength of that Korean labor movement.
but that's just to say, all right, thanks for the softball, but I hope that's a down payment on a, uh, on a Marxist analysis of that process. a big challenge. I've, I've actually made a small down payment on, a, on it in a book that came out last year that's on uh, China's role in what's called the Greater Mekong subregion. And so I'll just summarize briefly an argument I have there before addressing your specific question about China's developmental state. Uh, if one were approaching the Chinese state in general, not just today but in the past, through what I would consider an adequately Marxian lens, the big challenge is that people tend not to think or talk about class in China. And, and I mean specifically in the Maoist period when it's argued that, well, you know, it's a socialist bureaucracy running things. My argument is that actually, and there's some literature that takes this line, minority literature, that the most useful way to analyze China through the Maoist period is, is a particular kind of class formation and a class formation that extends into the state. I actually use, I'm sorry I can't go into detail on this, some insights from Nikos Poulantzis, whose work I've also been indebted to in other contexts. But I think it helps us see even the Maoist state as a class project. Now I think that class project has been transformed in the, what we could call Deng Xiaoping era after 1978. And I think it's become a more capitalist class project than it used to be. It's still highly heterogeneous, and there are lots of debates that go on in the China scholarship that, I'm, that I can't even fully address, but that say, is it really a capitalist economy at this point? Is it something like state socialist? Is it a polyglot? How do we think about it? And I don't want to attempt to resolve those questions, but what I think is in spite of the transformation, it's still very much a class project run by particular groups within the Chinese state, as well as their, especially now their international allies. Uh, that bring in investment capital and so forth. And that as such, it is a kind of quasi-capitalist state. Is it therefore increasingly a developmental state? Because yes, it is still a state that has certain capacities to discipline finance and so on. Uh, there's an argument for making that case, and I understand it. And I think you might construct China as a developmental state. I will say that personally, I'm a little bit reticent about it for the time being, simply because I think this developmental state construct does particular things as it stands now, as a sort of analytical construct. Uh, China has so much that's different about it, that's unique about it, that uh, I'd, I'd kind of, you know, gnash my teeth for a while before deciding do I want to assimilate it to that paradigm. For example, the Chinese economy in the period that we might now refer to as the development of a developmental state is much more dependent on foreign direct investment and much more dependent on export growth that's triggered by, you know, not just Walmart subcontracting to get goods out of uh, Guangdong, but all kinds of foreign investment repatriation of profit from it and so on for the robust export boom. That wasn't the case with South Korea. South Korea's growth was triggered very much by domestic firms, not by U.S. investment in South Korea. So would that difference make enough of a difference to say it's not a developmental state? Well, my, my main point here would be I don't know that China can or would try to discipline foreign capital on which it's dependent 
to the same extent as the Korean state, at least tried to discipline domestic capital. And so we'd have to sort those out a bit before I'd be willing to say definitively I think China could be fit into that paradigm. But I think it's a good uh, point to raise. Yeah. I'm sure I shouldn't respond on behalf of uh, all Marxists, but I'll, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually, no, no, that, I, I think it's a perfectly legitimate question. I will say that because of the purposes of this particular, especially this particular presentation, but also the project in general, that some of the elements that you might more clearly identify as Marxist lie kind of the, to the side and maybe even out of view. But let's take, for example, this issue of the U.S. Uh, approach to Asia. I've actually written about this in other places in different ways, and whether or not my particular Marxist take is representative of others, I'd say it's a staunchly Marxist approach. So, for example, if you go back to the end of the Second World War, and I'll start at the State Department, but I won't end there. You've got U.S. planners like Will Clayton and others who come out of big transnational cotton trading firms and whatnot, and they're looking at the U.S. economy that was in the dumps in the 1930s during the Great Depression. And they're saying, how do we avoid going back into depression at the end of the war? We had labor struggles in the 30s that were hard to handle. We had a huge surplus that we couldn't consume in the domestic economy. How do we prevent the end of the war, which, because the idea well understood was the war economy solved the problem for the time being. It created a market for surplus production. It allowed the U.S. government to end up uh, to play roles in the economy it hadn't had before. It gave leverage for disciplining labor, have people work overtime, things like this. How do we prevent the end of the war from preventing that temporary resolution of the economic problems from coming to an end? 
and the big push for the U.S. to play a role in reorganizing the global economy grew right out of that kind of economic interest that was stated very bluntly by people like Dean Acheson, Will Clayton, and others. Why is it Marxist? Huh? What? We all agree with that, I think, as a, as a characterization of events. Yeah. All right, so... But, but how does Marxism help us to explain that? Marx, I would say it helps you to explain it because it's not just contingent in the sense that that happened to be the case. The accumulation. They were smart guys. Hmm? They were yeah. Smart guys who had a calculation of economic interest among other kinds of. But they also had a calculation it of it. Out to be right. They actually had a calculation of a dynamism of a process that, in in in, in cases like Atchison's, was probably owed more to people like Keynes. All right, but said. We systematic, Atchison put it this way in testimony before Congress. He said, we produce a surplus that we cannot absorb ourselves. And that's the nature of our economic system. And we could change that if we wanted to put it, as he said, change the property relations, the entire constitution, and things we don't envision doing. So in order to deal with that, we have to find foreign markets to export our surplus goods and surplus capital. And this was exactly the kind of argument that someone like William Appleman Williams picked up on, the famous diplomatic historian who used to be here many years ago, and said, this is why a Marxist account of the dynamism of capitalism that generates a surplus that it will never be able to fully absorb is important to understanding foreign policy. U.S. foreign policy is not just about narrow sectional interests or you know, responding to, hey, let's export this or that. It's rooted in systematic forces that systematically generate over what David Harvey today would call overproduction, or ra rather over, uh, over accumulation. Sometimes thought about as overproduction. There are other ways of thinking about this. So the point is, it's systemic in a, in a successful capitalist economy, not a failed capitalist economy, a very successful one. And the US has the most successful capitalist economy in the world as of 1945 the major successful survivor of the Second World War, was in a position where it was going to have to try to restructure the global economy somehow to make sure that that tremendous productive capacity could be fully employed without surplus accumulating in ways that led back into Great Depression. Right? So you would have to anchor it in the specific Marxist economic analysis of crisis dynamics, overaccumulation, and so on. And to be sure, I haven't done that here and haven't had time to do that. But that's the way in which I see, for example, US foreign policy is anchored in the class processes in the United States. Not entirely determined by them, but anchored in them. Why don't we continue it over uh, a reception? Thank you. Right. Thank you.